Welcome to one more edition of Politics Done Right. My name is Egberto Willis. Today we are honored to have Mira Weinstein with us. She is the founder and organizer in chief of Organizing to Win. Uh, anytime I hear organizing or organizing with the word win, that's what it's all about. Welcome to Politics Done Right. Mira, how are you doing today? Good. It's nice to meet you. I'm Mira Weinstein. Oh, I'm sorry. For, I, I, I sorry for saying well, it wrong. If you speak Mi Spanish, it's like Mira, yeah. Mira. Mira. Well, hablo español, so it's Mira Weinstein. Okay. All right, Mira. First of all, tell us a little bit about what got you into founding an organization, organizing to win. Well, you know, my whole background is in organizing and political campaigns. And so there was a period where I was looking for my next opportunity, figuring out what I was going to do next. And I was interviewing, I was researching, I was networking, I was meeting with people and um, nothing really fit. It just, it, it just, nothing really seemed to be right. And uh, I had a particularly weird meeting at the end of 2019. It wasn't bad. It was just kind of, you know, weird. And I walked out of that meeting thinking, first of all, I don't want to do that. Second of all, why am I killing myself? What I really want to do is help bring people together to build power. And whether I do that with one organization or whether I do that um, with lots of organizations, it doesn't matter. That's what I want to do. And so that's how Organizing to Win was born, because now, I had this view that I wanted to bring people together to build power. Now, Mira, you worked uh, under, or rather during the Dukakis campaign, uh, you worked on that years ago. Um, did that influence, and you know, all that went wrong in that campaign, did that, did that have an influence on you uh, stating maybe we needed to do things a little bit different to reach the people we needed to reach. Because as you know, uh, Dukakis' loss wasn't really because of what he represented, but because of what others sort of imparted on him to represent. Well, I was 18 at the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. it was the, I get I get what she uh, she is young audience <laughs> <laughs> well not that young but okay thanks um, well you know the first time I knocked on a door was 1988 during mm -hmm. that campaign right and you know at the time I thought um, I thought a lot of things I was the only person in America who thought Michael Dukakis could win I did <laughs> okay well then two of us thought he could okay. win yeah um, but I also thought that if we could just elect all the right people, we could solve all our problems. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you've noticed, but none of those things happened. True. Um, uh, and so I I started to, I did a lot of different things. You know, I worked with feminist activists at the National Organization for Women on these huge national mobilizations. And I start my my theory of change, so to speak, started to evolve. You know, I worked with union members on building stronger unions. And I worked with gun violence prevention activists. And I worked with teachers and former teachers who were who were fighting for organize uh, for educational justice in their communities. And my my theory of change started to evolve where I started to think, Yes, we need to elect all the right people. We need to pass the right laws. We need to have the right leaders. But we really need to do more than win. 
um, we need to build power. You know, I was talking with one of my sort of formational organizing bosses. She was the first uh, first supervisor I ever had in actual organizing instead of political campaigns. And so I was talking to her about the difference between organizing and mobilizing. Mm-hmm. And she said, she thought about it for a second. She said, organizing is transformational. Where And I sort of understood what she meant at that time. So we have to win, right? We have to elect all the right Mm -hmm. people. We have to pass the right laws. We have to have the right leaders in place. And we have to do more than win. With the... Mira, I mean, I love what you just said because... Earlier today on my on-air program, KPFT 90.1 FM uh, show, Politics and Right, a caller called in. First of all, uh, an initial caller called in and spoke about those people uh, that simply have given up on voting. And uh, it was specific. He was specific to black men not voting. And, uh, you know, a, a black guy called in and he said, yes, he was talking to me. And yes, I don't see the value in voting anymore because, you know, uh, we don't really get a choice on who to elect. Here's what you've just said to us. You've said, wait a minute, it's not just enough to elect the people, the right people. There is more. And I was trying to explain to the uh, to the young man that there was more. And I think that is what you're alluding to as far as organizing above and beyond the elected is am i am I, did i get that right at all i think so I, I think about political campaigns as mobilizing mm-hmm. you know i have a, a a friend who is a longtime organizer who is really brilliant and he says you have to organize before you can mobilize and so yeah. organizing is this sort of intangible squishy abstract thing in some ways where I think about the definition of organizing is bringing people together to build power. And when those people are together, when we have consensus, when we trust each other, when we have relationships with each other, we can move together to mobilize. Right, right. You know, it's interesting, Mira, because, um, and this is, a, is, this is for the wrong cause, but it's exactly what you're talking about. If you look at the consistency of, let's say, the Trump voter, the ones that he can do no wrong for, there is a strong trust among that group as well as trust, even to a person that isn't trustworthy. But they're exhibiting all the things that you would like to see simply, however, on the correct side of values. I think so. It's tough to it's tough to make that shift, right? Hard to put myself in those shoes. I know. And I think that there's something special and different about that group of folks. And and I haven't quite figured out what it is. It's you know, I think that there was similar um following mm-hmm. to Obama. Mm-hmm. But you know, of course, I'm an Obama supporter, so I think it's different, right? Right. So it's hard to to be. Uh, I'm not sure there is any such thing as objectivity. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to sort of put myself in the shoes of someone who thinks about 
following Donald Trump the way that many of us follow Obama, right? right. It's hard to make that equivalency. Um, well, I think you answered that already, though. I mean, if you take a look at narrative, right? The narrative that these guys, and, you know, I get Trumpists that call into my program and, you know, I am very respectful in, in the way I deal with them. But one of the things that they have, all of them, they have a narrative and it's a narrative that plays to their culture, a narrative that plays to their beliefs, a narrative that, and, you know, when Obama came into power or or when Obama started his, uh, uh, what, what was the phrase again? Uh, uh, you know, we are who we're, we've been looking for and that those sort of things, it is something that we could hold on to. And it felt real, right? To those people, you know, it feels real. And you're organizing, when you talk about organizing to win, it's generating that narrative, in my opinion, at least, to those, even including those who have a false narrative. How can you bring that to them? You know, I think about this in a couple of ways, it, and it's it, the easiest way to talk about it is in terms of elections, even though elections are really more a mobilization than an organization organizing. But I think that there are elements of organizing that we can bring into traditional politics. And I started to think about this. Um, this is sort of a long winded answer to your question, but it's how I think about it. I started to think about this um, after the 2018 midterms. Mm-hmm. Um, I helped turn uh, one of the, at least one of the Orange County, California districts blue in 2018. And then Orange in the general, County, wow. <laughs> yeah, well, we could talk a long time about that. I also, you know, in 2018, I worked with um, a gun violence prevention organization on a member engagement campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, and But after that election, I was talking with someone who was also involved in one of those, the flipped districts. Mm-hmm. And she was telling me, you know, we have all these fabulous volunteers who want to keep going, but we don't have anything for them to do. Oh, and I was oh, like, oh, dude, oh, <laughs> there's always yeah. something to do. But it got me to thinking because I thought, you know, in 2018, there were folks who voted for Democratic U.S. House candidates mm-hmm. because they didn't like to see children in cages. Mm-hmm. They're not going to be with us on gun violence. They're not going to be with us on on certain issues. Right. But they didn't like to see kids in cages. And I I thought to myself, you know, those people are not ours forever. Mm -hmm. But that's because we don't have a relationship with them. Amen. Yes. And if we could apply some kind of relationship building, you know, traditional organizing tactics to these uh, communities, then we may be able to shift them. So I was thinking about that and kind of spinning up the organizing campaign in my mind and talking with another friend of mine, a friend of mine who's been really instrumental in the shift that Orange County has made. Mm-hmm. I was talking to him about this and he said, well, that's right. And there are also folks that we're not talking to and that's why they're not involved. And so I was thinking about that as you were telling the story of the caller, because there's also a community of people that, that we're just not talking to. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, and because they don't vote because we don't have a relationship with them. Right. So why should they, there's been a 50 year campaign to convince 
many, many communities of people that politics is just not about you. Oh, don't worry about it. Politics isn't about you. And we're not talking to them, right? So why should they vote? Of course, they're not going to engage with us because we're not talking to them. And so it's these two communities of voters or potential voters that we're not talking to, that we have no relationship with, right? And that's the basis of organizing is when you build a relationship, you can move into action together. And we don't have relationships with these folks. So I've, you know, there's a, the, I think there's a whole lot of things we can do to move some of the tactics of traditional organizing to communicate and engage with, you know, these two different kinds of communities broadly defined. You know, Mira, that actually is not a long-winded answer. That was the perfect answer. And uh, and the reason why is the, the, the way you ended, the magical portion is we don't have a relationship with them. With, those, with that young woman uh, who told you, I have all these people with nothing to do, they have a lot to do building mm-hmm. relationships. And there's an interesting thing. Because I'm in Kingwood, a very red district, uh, probably much redder than what Orange County used to be. And uh, it turns out here in Texas that if we take a look at how the, 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 the mixture of the church and the social organizations get together to nurture these uh, people to the right, to nurture them with things that are not really in their best interest, but they feel the love, you know, they feel the love. So they follow the love. So I think you nailed it. And with organizations like yours, uh, understanding that, because what we have, in my opinion, and you tell me if you you think I'm wrong or not, is we have a lot of, and people don't like when I say this, but we have a lot of elitist organizations in Washington that seem to believe they know how to talk to somebody in Idaho or Orange County or or Harris County in the redder areas, et cetera. But they don't. But those are who get paid uh, to to come with the analysis, and then a Mira Weinstein uh, is trying to build funds for organizing to win, have to go scratch to be able to do what she just proved needs to be done. So, well, you know, let's be clear. I'm not the only one who has this brilliant no, idea. No, 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 no. I understand, uh, and I, I wasn't trying to imply that. I'm trying to say I know a lot of organizations like yours that are doing the the necessary work to go out there and and do exactly what you said, right? But again, they need the recognition, they need the funding, they need all all these types of actions to get truly get moving. Yeah. Mira, uh, look, give me a closer. Tell me what I should have asked you that I didn't. Tell me something that you wanted us to cover more in detail. Let's close this baby out. I think we can't be afraid to talk about power. You know, power is neutral. And sometimes we get hung up or intimidated out of talking about power. Yet power is the ability to act. And if what we want to do is build inclusive, equitable communities, we need to talk about power. Not power over, but power with. And so that the, the meaning of organizing is bringing people together to build power together, right? And the key words being people together in power. 
Um, and so I think that if we could, if we have that opinion or that perspective on power, we're not afraid to build it because it's power with, not power over. Mira Weinstein, founder and organizer of Organizing to Win. Thank you so kindly for having been on Politics and Right. Please keep up that great work that you're doing. Well, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. It was a, a great opportunity to talk about the things I love most. Michael. How are you, man? Rogers. Good the, to see you, Everett. What's going on? And I met you several years ago right here at Right Netflix, here at Never The founder of Raw Story. And you bought up a whole lot of other stuff, too, didn't you? Yeah, a couple of little things. What other I want to give credit to my friend, John. He founded it. I got there a few months later. I thought you, I so, thought you were from the beginning, man. Like... The site is 20 years old. I yeah. was there for 19 years and eight months. Okay, founder. <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to change what it's I all said. Good. I, I okay. think it's all good. It's all anyway, good. I just want to credit John. Yeah, it's good. because I think you picked up a couple others and well, we consolidated it, right? Well, we have a site called Alternet, which right. was founded in 1996. I remember with the founding, yes. But, and it was really an early leader on the web for right. different than Raw. Raw is hard news. And mm -hmm. we have some opinion, and there's more thoughtfully like kind of curated opinion right. and, and issues over at alternate and people like that and then another site we have is the new civil rights movement okay you know i was i didn't know that you owned so, this new yeah. that also. we added yeah. that to the to the repertoire to the list to the big repertoire to the big repertoire of what you're doing so, so your traffic is pretty large um and growing 90 million hits a month or so yeah i i, I think that's excellent i mean Thanks. and uh you know how did you grow it from that little thing all the way up to where it's at right now so I think part of it is timing, right? Right. Um, you couldn't start a raw story today like that. No, you, you can't. couldn't open up a computer, create no. a website, and say, "I want to start to bring people in," right? Because you're now in a media landscape right. that you're fighting with eight trillion other people. Right. But in the early days of raw, we um, John envisioned that we need a liberal alternative, right? to the conservative media right. that are constantly pushing their messages. You know, I, I once said, I said, how can we influence the media? Right. And he says to me, it's far better to be the media than to try to influence it. I am <laughs> going to tell you a thing. I'm, I, with Coffee Party USA, we came up with that uh -huh. moniker in, nine, in, in 2000 and, when did Obama did it? 2000, we came up with that moniker in 2010 to fight what was going on with all the bad media that you remember right. all the media was leaving things like throw grandma over the ridge or right. death panels so we said we were going to be the media mm -hmm. and you know for all practical purposes we tried you know right i i you know i used to write several years ago for raw story as well mm -hmm. you know and um, it was it was always a place that you know folks are going to ultimately see your stuff because well, we you guys try. know how to market <laughs> that sucker, you know. We have a very strong. I mean, I, I remember getting a, I, I remember getting a, a tweet or something with, and Justin with Egberto Willis on it, and I'm like, where the hell does that come from? Right. Raw story. I'm like, oh, okay. And we syndicate a lot of great stuff. Right. We work with providers to make sure that, what one of the things we do is we like to get unrepresented voices. Right. And underrepresented stories. Right. There's so many important stories in the country, that. People are not following. Right. My, some of my greatest pleasures when one of our reporters goes out, does an, right. a, a unique story, an original, exclusive, 
And then I turn on the cable news and they're like, so Raw Story reported today. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, that's like going up the chain. It's having an effect. You know, it's it, mine is on a very tiny scale. But I remember the first time I broke a story from in, in Dallas and it was like, wow, you get that feeling that, yep. you know, it's it, so I mean, yeah. it, it happens now. You guys break stories every damn day now, you know, so. Yeah, we try. We've know. just added some more. Um, we've gotten we weren't a lot of investigative reporting. Yeah. We kind of developed more into um, <clears throat> this hard punching liberal stuff. Right. And now we're realizing we need to do kind of both. Right. That there's, you know, going to be a, a great balance. balance. And I imagine you use your alternate platform for the more uh, solid reporting as opposed to less opinion or. Well, the alternate is more of a curated site mm -hmm. in which like we have agreements with right. you know, dozens of different websites right. say, can we run your material like right. the AP like right. any other site right. um, what you're going to find is that thoughtful kind of reporting right. Over, right. not that it's not thoughtful there no, but no, it, 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 it is like less opinionated a, less opinionated yeah it, and it, it, it the opinions that come come from this curation right. that's going on so right. it's kind of mixed in as opposed to what there used to be a lot more like opinion sections and right. now it's more focused on the broader, I think right. is what you're what you're talking about. And it's yeah. it's and, exciting and, to see everybody work together but on different And entities. it's important, right? And I, I, I think look, I the, the two people before I, I interviewed a guy who said he's trying to unite the progressive space in such a way that uh, we cooperate on on issues. Because right now if you notice there are talking points that the right has and they hammer those talking points right through the day all over. Unlike yep. the ever the progressive space who go off and do each their individual thing. Nothing wrong with, I think, I understand what he's saying. I think we should all go off and do our individual thing. But I think we should also have some talking points at all. Of, I mean, every website is unlimited in the size and the scope of the right. things it can carry. Of course. Right? So I wish there, I, I, personally, I don't have the time. But if somebody were out there that says we in this space are going to have these talking points for the day and we all have a consortium that does that i would be for that we need to find a way to bridge like one of the examples i use is this the environmental movement wants to protect the environment right they want to make sure that our land and our lakes and are free from contaminants and da da da, da. The labor movement that we love right. wants to have jobs building pipelines. Exactly. Right. So how can we come together with right. labor and educate them about, well, what does it really mean? This 8,000 jobs, once it's built, are nine jobs of people sitting in front of a monitor. Exactly. So when you start to, and that's the kind of coalitions that we need to be building. Exactly. And uh, I have an old line. It's not my line. Uh -huh. It may have been, you may have heard it, but it's like this. It goes like this. You take 100 conservatives and you put them in a room. Right. And if they disagree on 99 things yeah. and agree on one, they're walking out of that room fighting for the one issue. Exactly. You put 99 liberals in a room who agree on, you put 100 liberals in a room, 99 of whom agree on everything, they will walk out fighting about, about the, the one, one thing. That you is, know. But you know what? It's a stereotype, <laughs> but it's true. Right. And, and we don't need to leave that stereotype. What we need to do is build on that stereotype. In other right. words, that is okay. But it's also sure. okay for us to say we're going to concentrate on on the, uh, uh, we, we're going to give some and, space to that one thing we disagree on and work on the other 99. Right. And, and if you're in that little disagreement space, how do you affect the other 99? Exactly. What do we do to get, and who is the enemy here, right? That, that, that's, most who importantly, is the right? Enemy? Exactly. Exactly. So you're at this, uh, 
kind of inflection point where there's all these exhibitors and all these people and you know, I don't like you and you do this and you do that. But at the end, somehow it comes together. But I agree, we lack we lack a Frank Lutz. Yes. Frank Lutz, who I can't stand, right. does an amazing job. We right? were talking about him a no few minutes ago. No one's doing that on the left. Yes. No one is pulling together these focus groups. Like, pick an issue, right? Like, the right wing is going to yeah. pick an issue, and they're going to use it as a wedge and right. do whatever they had. The Democrats yeah. need better, like, the issue of gender care, mm-hmm. okay? This is a big controversy. Controversy all over the country. Right. They are going to make it one of their top four issues exactly. in the campaign. When we're talking yeah. about nine people in the right, country, right. right? The Democratic talking point is simple. Ladies and gentlemen, all of this is not worth anything. It's all a show. It's all practice for controlling bodies. And go. what controlling bodies is about is abortion, abortion, abortion. And then never stop saying the word abortion. Exactly. But that's not us. No, no, no. We're going to use this as an opportunity to try to educate Jerry Falwell. As if we're going to get I Jerry Falwell. We will never educate the, the, right. the, the Jerry Falwells of the world. 10% and 20% of the population don't waste your time. And you know, the reason I'm not talking any specific technical or political issue with you know is because there's a political issue we need to talk about. And then there's a transport. And I call the media the transport. And we have to perfect the transport. And that is where we're not yet perfecting the transport and I, and, and, and and people give you a hard time in in some of the way raw story moves their stories the sensationalism yeah. of the stories and here's what i put out there i've learned i've learned headlining from raw story in this manner it doesn't matter it, it, what your headline is if somebody's not going to read your story so right. you want to give a headline for people to read your story right. and you're not fooling them you're just attracting their attention, attention. to right. read a solid amount of information right. and, and i understand listen we live in a partisan world we're right. partisan i always say we're biased exactly we're biased toward the truth yeah <laughs> right so but I, i'm going to give you an example it's irrelevant to me now you know we have a, a thriving publication we have 30 right. people but when we were young, right. we would go to progressive organizations. Yes. We went to the left. Can you give us some ads? Here's the traffic. We have, nah, nah, nah. You go to Breitbart. You want to talk about the money being pumped in? We're bigger than Breitbart on the web in terms of yes. numbers. You want to talk but about the money that the right wing shovels to their media? And not shovels it. Paid. Exactly. Now, like I said, I've always, I've, I've had this thing, like when this old ad company messed with like 20 bloggers, mm-hmm. right? And took away ad money. I fought the fight, but made them whole first because that's what's happening. These big outfits are taking advantage of the little guy mm-hmm. to depend on them. Like yes. it's, it's, and it's important, but I compare it to their successes. Right. We have successes, but when I compare it to theirs, it's always about the messaging and we do not put enough. Well, let me, let me just tell you, and I, I, I'll put you on the line here or put you on the spot here. I think, uh, with with your platform and your 90 million uh, views that you have, one of the next and and you know take take it or leave it. One of the next steps is how to 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 make that. I mean, if it's if it's for the movement, if it's not just a commercial issue, if it's for right. the movement, that has to be leveraged. There are not many right. places like you out there. So uh, mm-hmm. uh, you need to make money in my opinion and at the same time gotta pay the bills (laughs) pay the bills of course but leverage that authority that 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 notoriety in order for us to grow this space because again if the space is grown 
<laughs> well, you, uh, you're the big daddy. I have and to tell you. You're the big daddy in independence, all right? You're, you know, uh, we try. No, no. I mean, let's look at the numbers. You're the big right. daddy in independence. So, I mean, uh, as the big daddy in independent media and so forth, I think comes a lot of responsibility as well. Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree. One of the things that I think is really important about that responsibility is finding those stories. Right. Right. There was a kid who was killed. Right. Trayon White. Mm -hmm. No one heard of him. No one knew. Till we run a story, and it blows up, and then up that night it's on MSNBC every, and boom, the others, and there we are. Yeah. And that to me is, you know what? We're not going to get the credit. We're not going to get some big award. It, it, look, I've seen people get Pulitzers for exposing stuff we exposed six did, months yeah. before. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but that's like the Oscars. That's all so internal. It's right. so meant. Oh, we got to pump, like, got to pump up the traditional papers. Got to right. push that. You know. So, um, you do the work, then they take it. But, you know, in a way, if that helped to motivate the work, that's the kind of stuff that and, I get the most excited about. And again, about. that's the difference between an altruistic, a paper that's, I mean, yeah, you want to make a lot of money because with money you can do things. But right. altruistically, it also means that you get, you get the positive job done. Because right. there are too many, I mean, the, the other side, the idea is they're just in it for the money and they'll lie for it. We tell the truth right. and at the same time we can use our notoriety to right. make money. And I, and, and, I, and I think as long as our progressive press do that, it'd be fine. I would like us to work a lot more together. I'm talking about the totality of what we do because I think given that more Americans agree with the values that we support, I think, of course. Uh, yeah, I think it is imperative that we do That's that. That's why our but campaign this time around should be absolutely abortion, abortion. every other word. I mean... That's the closer. That is what the people care about. Right. Go look at all the surveys. I mean, it is clear as day. But we'll find a way maybe to... <laughs> well, no, I have hope. I, I mean, I, I'm I sorry. Hope. I hate the word hope. We are going to get it done. And it I takes... So. And again, with, with a, a platform like yours with 90 million, with what we are doing here and here, my little platform with Rick Smith, right. little platform and... But you know. you're reaching the core, 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 yes. core. Right. So that's how a site, like, it all builds on right. each other. And Absolutely. You know, one of the things, like, we sponsor Netroots Nation. Right. And some of my friends will say, well, I don't think our publication would do that. We want to remain in a point, you know. Yeah. Really? You don't want to give any money, is what you're saying. Yeah. You know, everyone knows that Breitbart is conservative. Yes. If Breitbart sponsors yes. a right-wing conference, it's not yes. going to be like, oh, clutch my pearls. What? How could this happen? Right. You know, and we need to step back. We need to step in and step forward and support the work. And it, it's really frustrating to me. Well, uh, look, you're doing a good job. Good Tell to us. see you, man. Nice to see you. And uh, Thank you so kindly for you'll being be here. here the rest of Rogers. The I'll be here for the whole conference. I'm doing, okay. I'm going to do at least 30, 40, 50 interviews. Wow. You know, but I, wow. I, I, I'm, I'm speaking to people that are making a difference. And well, brother, you're that. not just making a difference. You are tearing it apart. I hope. And, We're uh, trying. <laughs> you, keep, you keep doing what you do. Thank you so kindly for having been on Politics and Right. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Once again, Ray McGinnis. Ray McGinnis is the author of Unanswered Questions, What the September 11 Families Ask and the 9-11 Commission Ignored. McGinnis believes the stories of the families are the victims of September 11 and their efforts to establish an inquiry into the attacks offer a doorway for theological reflection about what it means to live in a post-11 uh, post 9-11 world. Senor McGuinness, welcome to Politics and Right once again. How are you doing today? I'm great. Great to speak with you again. 
Well, great. So let me ask you this question because uh, as we were talking, I said uh, I, I was just talking to your your publicist. It was, um, are there some great updates that we're going to have that we haven't heard about what occurred uh, with with 9-11 Saudi Arabia and why it is that we haven't done much about uh, about anything with regards to the people who actually affected this? Yeah. So so these families, of course, were the ones who were who, if it hadn't been for them, uh, uh, the co-chairs of the 9-11 Commission, Tom Keene and Lee Hamilton, said if it hadn't been for these families, we wouldn't be here. There wouldn't have been a 9-11 Commission. So after, you know, after all these years now, the fam- you know, there are families, not all of them, but many families involved. You know, they want to have a day in court with, with uh, the government of Saudi Arabia and various officials. Uh, connected to a number of 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 the hijackers and and you would think that the United States government, the Department of Justice, and so on would be saying families um be be our guest, go ahead and take this foreign nation where fifteen of nineteen hijackers came uh, on nine eleven um be our guest and go ahead and take them to court. And instead, you have a situation where, uh, like, uh, 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 Donald Trump's uh, Attorney General William Barr was saying, you know, he and uh, the national director of national security intelligence, uh, Richard Grinnell, uh, brought uh, sealed documents just, to the, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, saying no, no uh, Saudi connections to the 9/11 plot would. Um, would imperil NASA security, and we cannot um, we cannot have uh, any kind of uh, even the justification for that secrecy needs to be kept secret. And the families are saying of recent years, how can our taking Saudi Arabia to court or or various officials in Saudi Arabia and having a day in court? I mean. To see, you know, I mean, of course, in the court system, everybody's innocent until proven guilty. But how could that exercise of in and of itself uh, imperil American national security? So and and right up until, you know, this summer, we still have um, slow walking, stonewalling, obstruction, um, putting the families off uh, from the government. So it's bewildering to, to the families. And, and so I this wanna, is I wanna, this. This is over 20 years now, uh, since 9-11. And uh, are you to tell me that, uh, first of all, you're still in touch with many of these families? With with a number of the families, yes. Right. Now, and you're you're telling me that they are still seeking some sort of a recompense from uh, not necessarily our government, but the government of Saudi Arabia. And as it turns out, that we, our own government, is stopping that from uh, coming to fruition. Yes, in the summer of 2023. Uh, so if I if I try and go for a walk in the family members' shoes, they're just baffled at this at this resistance on the part of the Department of Justice. And this is irrespective of administration. Yes. Yeah. It's you know and. So and I and I want to I want to add that in addition to um, to the matter of Saudi Arabia, I mean you have you have the matter of the United Arab Emirates, uh, where there were several hijackers as well, and and uh, the the, the decision making of the uh, former counterterrorism chief uh, 
uh, Richard Clark uh, and his close relationship with United Arab Emirate Royals. And he, uh, on several occasions, he tipped off uh, the Royals to let Osama bin Laden know that the CIA was trying to apprehend him in both uh, there was one plan in, in February of, of 1999 and another one in March of 1999, both in relationship to charges that bin Laden was responsible for the bombing of U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania. And, and this, this is a matter of public record, but the, and the families want to know, well, well, why would you make that call as a counterterrorism czar when your job is to keep the nation safe? And for the families, they're saying, well, what would have happened if Richard Clark hadn't intervened to prevent that uh, plausibly successful apprehension of bin Laden in, in uh, the spring of, of 1999? Maybe in, in, in 2001, he would have been you know, defending himself in a court of law against charges of, of bombing uh, embassies in the east coast of Africa and not being involved in, in no, no time to plan uh, the attacks of September 11th. So, you know, I mean, so for the families, it's just there's an awful lot of odd decision making uh, by people in key positions. Now, uh, are, are, do we have any recent uh well let me let me put it this way do we have the families because we don't hear this on mainstream media at all uh, at all with with whether any families are trying to seek uh still after 20 years trying to seek some sort of a recompense from the the saudis or the emirates or other places where these hijackers came from uh nobody in effect talks about it anymore uh is it that they are they don't get any coverage what what is the issue uh, well, I, I, I have been able to find a few a few uh, places where where it's discussed, but they're not like the the, the, the you know something reported on CNN. Uh, and and I want to say as as well that that even even over in the United Kingdom, there's a family. Uh, Jeff Campbell died in the North Tower. Uh, he's from London, England, and um, and his family uh, over there was trying to get uh, satisfaction to open up, uh, have a new inquest, a new autopsy, a new inquiry into his death. And the judge in London, England said, no, no, you can't you can't look at this again. We're, we're not discussing this. So it's I mean, it's definitely a, a, the families run up, run into things in the United States, but but in, even in other countries. So it's it's a it's a. It's bewildering for the families to run into this this resistance in the United States and in the UK. No, what's your opinion as far as what's going on? Well, the I mean the nine the nine eleven commission um, uh, their report that came out in the summer of two thousand four was largely the kind of the the talking points for what the report would find were written in uh, March of, of 2003 by the executive director, Philip Zellico and another person, Ernst May, basically uh, describing what the report would conclude. And, and it seemed that the, fa the families who were uh, surprised that you would kind of pre-script what you were gonna find, don't you wanna just go and ask questions and then write your report later on instead of deciding ahead of time what your story is. And so there, you know, there was 
there was a sense wait wait that, yeah. hold, hold on a second let me see if i understand what you just said you're you're trying to tell me that uh when when we had the panel that uh gave the final report on what occurred on on uh september 11th that they had a pre pre-written script as to what the call you know the the scenario that actually occurred before they actually had the research and complete Yes, there was an outline uh, that that was written in two thousand and and three in March. Uh, now it wasn't like you know it was it was like all the chapter headings and the subheadings and stuff with some notes. And um, uh, when it, it it was kind of leaked to to numbers of the eighty staff of the nine eleven commission and to the families in uh, I think the spring of two thousand four and. Uh, and they, you know, I remember talking to Bob McElvane, whose son Bobby Jr. died. And then Bob McElvane, this is shocking that you would that you would have kind of a crib notes for what your report is going to find. Uh, and and the, I mean, the outline and the, the chapter headings and the subheadings are, you know, a mirror image of what the report chapter headings and subheadings are. So it makes families wonder, well, uh, you know what, you know, I, I mean, there's there was concern that 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 some of what was going on with the 9-11 commission itself was that a report would come out that would not embarrass the president or his reelection chances, uh, which for some families, they said that just shouldn't be an emphasis at all. Now, how would how would uh, people from around the other side of the world affect the president uh, uh, chances? You know, I, I guess I'm trying to figure out why why is it that they were so concerned? It seems to me like it has to be more sinister than that. I mean, why why would the president be concerned about uh, it's these are foreign terrorists who did this job unless why, why would they okay. be concerned? Well, well, I want to want to clarify what I'm talking about in terms of the president being embarrassed. It has to do with. Uh, that the report that would be issued by the 9-11 commissioners in July of 2004, that that report would not have anything in it that would embarrass the president uh, to hamper his reelection chances in, in, in 2004 and in, in November. Maybe it's something like uh, they didn't do their their due, due uh, diligence with the all the evidence that comes out that says, planes may be used to attack the building, that sort of a thing. Is that what we're talking about? Uh, yeah. So maybe they would say that, uh, that there were um, uh, decisions by, by key people. I mean, the, the, the story that we were just blindsided and we couldn't have known uh, doesn't make sense in the face of uh, 14 other nations that gave uh, warnings um, uh, that, uh, that people are making decisions on the one hand saying, you know, George Tennant saying, you know, the CIA director saying my hair is on fire, uh, Richard Clark saying something really big is going to happen. And then nobody thinks that maybe the CIA and the FBI and the INS need to sit down together and talk about <laughs> what do we do if we think something really big is going to happen. Uh, so it, it's, it's, it's around decision-making um, and uh, I mean, I mean, there there are questions families have around. I mean, on the one hand, when the uh, when it's clear that there is an attack, uh, the Secret Service uses its correct protocol, which is to take the vice president, Dick Cheney, away 
right away, you know, no questions asked. We're taking you out of out of your office and off you go to the bunker. And meanwhile, George W. Bush is sitting for, you know, 20 minutes, half an hour in front of a class reading a story about a pet goat. And nobody thinks that the president might be in danger if this is a surprise attack. So there's lots of questions around around these kinds of things that the families still have that just were never explained. Now, uh, uh, how, about how many families are still in, in uh, still trying to get some answers now? Because I mean, we were talking about during this event, probably over two thousand families that were impacted by nine uh, eleven. Yeah, there's a you know, just short of three thousand individuals who died. So then you have tens of thousands of people who are variously uh, mothers, fathers, Infected. sisters, brothers, nieces, nephews, you know, so on, grandparents, grandchildren, and so on. So, um, I mean, there are certainly many families who, after years, after the report came out, have decided to go off to, you know, have a private life. But there are still, I think, some thousand, a couple thousand families still involved in, in this particular lawsuit regarding Saudi Arabia. And I think for, for some of the families, it's simply a matter, you know, we want uh, the Saudis to be to take, you know, responsibility uh, for what happened. For other families, they're hoping that maybe, uh, maybe a Saudi official uh, defending themselves would call some witness uh, uh, connected to the U.S. government that might point to, uh, you know, dereliction of duty. I mean, that's what Kristen Breitweiser, whose whose husband Ron uh, uh, died in the South Tower. That's what she talks about. But uh, but uh, I think the families from uh, the families that want to have a lawsuit are careful not to not not to blame. Uh, you know, not to pre prejudge what a trial would find. And I think that that's a good call because they 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 don't want to be seen as as going on a witch hunt. So there's actively there's an active lawsuit that is in effect right now that uh, and I guess that is one of the reasons that uh, you wanted to go ahead and uh, come out again and point out much of what you uh, got from many of the families that you've interviewed. Yeah, that they're that they that they're there. I mean, there there still is this attempt, of course, uh, at this point, they're not seeing a day in court. There's not a trial date. There's still legal wrangling and uh, and. Uh, you know, uh, difficulties, uh, uh, impediments being put put in their way. So, so how can uh, you help them to go? Uh, help them to go ahead and, uh, and help the process, if you will. Uh, well, I guess uh, I guess I can. I mean, in insofar as I here in Vancouver, Canada, can help. I can I can let people know that this is still something that's going on, and even even if you're uh, much of the media is not covering this story. It's, uh, you know, it's important and people could reach out to, uh, uh, you know, voices of September 11th or other family groups that, uh, that are involved in, in this. I, I think if people do, like even a Google search on 9-11 families lawsuit against Saudi Arabia, and you did that today on your computer, you could find some links to stories in the news and then see, uh, you know, people like Kristen Breitweiser and Brett Eagleson and others who are named and, and you know, perhaps a link to a, to a group that you can support. Well, Ray, what would you have liked me to ask you that I didn't? You, you, this is the second time on, so you know I was coming with that question. Okay. Well, I, th I think, I think, uh, I think we can we can talk about how the family's efforts uh, was uh, you know it's it's a this is about this is about democracy and transparency in government. I think that 
the story that of these families, I mean, these families instead, I mean, for most people, if you have a devastating loss in your family, especially something like this, your, your instinct is going to be to, uh, to, to, to be far away from the spotlight, to not talk to, to, to politicians or the media, and to go on and live your private life after you've dealt with the, uh, the estate and the, uh, you know, the funeral and so on. But these families, you know, of, of the ones that, that had losses, went to Washington, D.C., knocked on the doors of members of Congress, you know, and the Senate. And then after they're finally pressed to get a, an investigation, then they went and they, they gave the 9-11 Commission several, you know, thousand, over a thousand questions to ask different individuals and agencies, which the commissioners received by saying, thank you, families, these are really good questions. And then the, and then the commission proceeded to only answer about 9% with any real seriousness, any deep dive, and left uh, most of the questions without, without being addressed. But the families monitored the 9-11 commission and they, they, they tried to keep it on track. And so I think, I think that they're like, I think that people, I mean, we know who Rosa Parks is, and I think that we should know who Kristen Breitweiser, who lost her husband, Ron, Patty Casaza, who lost her husband, John, Mindy Kleinberg, who lost her husband, Alan, Lori Van Auken, who lost her husband, Kenneth, and so on, Mary Fetcher, who lost her son, Brad. These, these people should be studied in, in high school. I mean, this is a, this is a, you know, a, a stunning introduction to the 21st century, and we need to know their names, and we need to know what they tried to do to keep uh, America safe and to, uh, you know, and I would say as well that that the dozen people who were on this family steering committee representing tens of thousands of families, the majority of them voted Republican. So this was not like uh, a bunch of Democrats that had it out for George W. Bush. So uh, this is about or what happens to ordinary citizens when they end up getting caught up in a story like this and uh, what we can learn about uh, about how the media before the 9-11 Commission report came out, the media uh, was sympathetic to their questions. And then after the report came out, for the most part, there's exceptions like Harper's Magazine. But for the most part, the media circled the wagon, said the report was a great report, and largely went on and ignored the family's questions that were left unanswered. So it's a, it's a cautionary tale. It's a cautionary tale. Ray McGinnis, author of Unanswered Questions, What the September 11th Families Asked and the 9-11 Commission Ignored. Thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Done Right. A pleasure. Thanks so much. If you want to see the responsibility, if you want to see the lack of morality, if you want to see outright degeneracy in a nice face in a pleasant narrative, you just have to listen to uh, Cassidy, Senator Cassidy out of Louisiana. Why? Uh, he claims that he does believe that Donald Trump is guilty. And he think that the paperwork, the, the, the where he kept on uh, uh, the, the papers that he held on to, he said, that's a slam dunk. It seems like that's a slam dunk to keep all the, the classified records and he also thinks that maybe where they have him on tape claiming that uh you know get me more votes also likely make him guilty so cassidy says with a straight face i think he should drop out of the race 
anybody on the stage that goes ahead and support Donald Trump, anyone on the stage supporting Donald Trump in the in any of these debates would make a better candidate than Donald Trump, a better president than Donald Trump. Great. So far, that sounds pretty good. I want you to listen to what he says there and what he says thereafter, because it's the thereafter that shows that these folks have no morality, no soul, no real patriotism, no interest in a country moving forward in a positive direction. I want you to listen to this and then we'll take it on the other side. Let's talk now about the presidential race. Donald Trump, the former president, he is facing federal charges uh, over his efforts to overturn the election. And you did vote to convict him in his impeachment trial after January 6th. You said, quote, because he is guilty. Uh, the former attorney general, Bill Barr, says that the, the charges that have been brought against him are, quote unquote, responsible. Uh, do you agree? Well, I'm not an attorney. There's 91 charges, I think. I think the charge that seems most likely, I mean, seems almost a slam dunk, is the one related to mishandling of classified documents. So um, uh, so I, I can't comment on the rest of them because apparently you have to prove state of, state of mind. Uh, you'll have attorneys after me that will, can comment on that. But there's at least one, which is the mishandling of the federal documents, which is um, seems, again, a very strong case. They have a tape recording of him speaking of it. If that is proven, then we may have a candidate for president who has been convicted of a crime. Um, I think Joe Biden needs to be replaced, but I don't think Americans will vote for someone who's been convicted. Uh, so um, I, I, I'm just very sorry about how, how all this is playing out. Do you think that Donald Trump should drop out of the race? Uh, I think so. But obviously, that's up to him. I mean, you're just asking me my opinion. But, I, but I, he will lose to Joe Biden if you look at the current polls. I'm a Republican. I think any Republican on that stage in Milwaukee will do a better job than Joe Biden. And so I want one of them to win. Uh, if, if former President Trump ends up get, getting the nomination but cannot win a general, uh, that means we'll have four more years of policies which have led to very high inflation, to a loss of purchasing power for the average American equivalent to $10,000, uh, and to many other things which I think have been deleterious to our country's future. So if Donald Trump does ultimately win the Republican nomination, uh, will you vote for Joe Biden or the Democrat over the Republican on the ticket? I'm going to vote for a Republican, but my threshold issue for any person who wants to be the leader of our country is will you take care of the issues before us? Both Biden and Trump both have the same policy on Social Security, for example, which is to do nothing. Unfortunately, Social Security is going insolvent in eight to nine years, which means that somebody watching this who's getting Social Security is going to get a 24 percent cut. Both former President Trump, President Biden are basically basically saying you're going to get a 24 percent cut because I'm not going to do anything. Now, my threshold issue, if you want to be a leader of our country, is to lead. And right now we need someone who will lead on that issue. Now, so Bill Cassidy couldn't answer the real question that the host asked correctly. She said, OK, do you think. Uh, uh, do you think Donald Trump should drop out of the race? Yes, he should. Good answer. Now, if he drops out of the race and he happens to be the Republican candidate, are you going to vote for him? Well, uh, I'm going to vote. Are you going to vote for uh, El Senor Biden? Well, uh, I am going to vote for the Republican. In other words, he's saying 
if there's a Biden, uh, Biden-Trump race, he's still going to vote for Trump. He didn't say that, but that is by an inference. But let me tell you what makes it worse. She asks him, uh, he starts to say that there is no difference policy-wise between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Of course, that's patently false. Donald Trump wasn't going to do all the social programs that, uh, that we got Biden to do. He wouldn't have had the IRA. He wouldn't have had the student loan funds. He wouldn't have had any of those things, right? Because that's not what the Republican orthodoxy stands for. So they are not the same. It's Look, we can call Biden a neoliberal all we want, which is true, but he has come out with some good policies after, after being rigged on by progressives in the party, and they came to compromises. We didn't get all that we wanted, but you know what? I'll be saying I'm as progressive as left as one can get, and I am so surprised at the amount that we got. I'm talking about uh, home programs. I'm talking about domestic programs, what we've gotten from Biden. So they're not the same. But here you have Cassidy saying Biden and Trump are the same. So how can you say you don't that you don't think the American people will elect a, a convicted felon? You don't want to elect a convicted felon. You claim that Donald Trump and Joe Biden are the same policy-wise. So then if you don't want to elect a convicted felon and you think Donald Trump should get out of the race and if Donald Trump still wins, you claim you're not going to vote for Biden, you're going to vote for the Republican, that just shows that you have, first of all, your words mean nothing. Your words mean absolutely nothing Senator Cassidy. It shows that this has nothing to do with morality. This has nothing to do with law and order. This has nothing to do with anything other than all you want to ensure is that a Republican is in power, irrespective of whether that Republican is a felon or not. My name is Egberto Willis. This is Politics Done Right, and you guys know how I am this baby. I am what? Out!